Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. Today, we are going to dive into a topic that has been buzzing in the news and on social media. GLP-1 medications like Ligovi seem to be blowing up for weight loss. Elon Musk talked about taking Ligovi to lose weight and a lot of other celebrities, many who definitely did not need it, have been rumored to take it for weight loss. While these medications have been used to treat type 2 diabetes for years, last year, Wegovy was FDA approved specifically for weight loss. More than 40% of Americans qualify as obese, yet only 1% of doctors are trained in obesity medicine. Some think that this medication could be the ultimate shift in managing obesity and the chronic conditions it causes, not to mention help bring down the estimated annual medical cost of obesity in the United States, which is over $173 billion. But others are a little more skeptical and are questioning who should be taking this and are we creating more problems by making this even more accessible? So I wanted to learn more. Today's guest is the CEO of Found, the largest medically supported weight care clinic in the country. Founded in 2020, Found has raised $132 million in venture funding. Found is led by CEO Sarah Jones-Simmer, who is the former COO of Bumble. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Let's kind of set the background and talk about obesity. How big of a problem is it today? And do you think it should be treated as a disease or a chronic condition? I think it's one of the biggest problems facing public health today. I think we're we're at a moment where close to 70% of Americans struggle with overweight and obesity. And unfortunately, it's a pretty stigmatized condition still. I think so much of the legacy way that we treated this was to say, just try harder, just eat less, exercise more, maybe have a little bit of willpower, maybe it's your fault. And the reality is that this is a disease, not a decision. It should be treated like a chronic condition. We need to shift the lens that we look at obesity from one of self-image to one of health. And I think that's where we're at an interesting moment. We have really positive trends, things like body positivity and self-acceptance, And yet we also have skyrocketing rates of diabetes. And so there has to be a way to thread the needle between both of those things and really think about advancing both treatment as well as evolving the narrative. 
it, it reminds me in many ways of where we were with mental health 10 years ago. And I, I'm so pleased that we've gone through such a transformation in the way that we treat mental health in this country. We know that it's not just about bucking up or smiling or trying to be more mindful. We really think about a wide toolkit approach that involves medications where appropriate and that brings clinicians to the table and can treat things in a holistic way. That's the same way we have to think about treating obesity. It's about a lot more than willpower. It really does have biological implications, both in terms of the downstream impacts of obesity and the things that give rise to obesity in the first place. So I'm really pleased that we're moving the conversation in a direction that does focus more on health, but there's a lot more to be done here. I feel like traditionally when I think of the diet industry, I think of them preying on people, vulnerable people who might have body image issues and really tackling the vanity aspect of it versus the health impact of obesity. What are some other ways that just traditionally the the weight loss industry has gone about it all wrong? Because obviously they're not, it's, it hasn't been working. The way we've been going about it has not been working. Obesity has gotten worse in this country and the complications from obesity have gotten worse. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's well said. I mean, gosh, I, I think I went to my first Weight Watchers meeting with my mom in high school and have had ups and downs on my own journey with weight ever since. And, and I know I'm not alone in that. I was reading a statistic the other day that the average 45-year-old woman, and you know, disproportionately this industry preys on women, the average 45-year-old woman has been on 61 diets in her lifetime. And the diet industry is, is failing us. I think so often the framing is that we are failing our diets. I, I actually think the industry is failing us in the sense that it's not treating this as a truly heterogeneous and multifactorial challenge. And by that, I mean the root cause of people's struggle with obesity is different person to person. Some of it is brain hunger. Some of it is gut hunger. Some of it is insulin resistance and other hormonal challenges. Some of it is metabolic. So we're not treating it in a truly heterogeneous way and acknowledging that the root cause is different for people. And we're not treating it in a multifactorial way. A lot of the legacy approach was focused on food and maybe movement, but ignored things like sleep or stress or other social determinants of health and lived experiences, cultural influences. And the reality is it's multifactorial. The things that contribute to weight gain or contribute to challenges with weight loss, there are many. And I think the, the reality is some folks have found some success on some programs, but we kind of then take that and translate it into this one size fits all approach. So everybody should go on a, I don't know, lemonade and cayenne pepper juice cleanse. Sounds awful. That's not going to work for yeah. everyone. Right. And, and we've stigmatized those who have failed diets when actually it's the diet that's failing them. Mm-hmm. And why, why do you think there's so much stigma around it? Oh, I, I think there's a variety of reasons. I think there's a lack of education. It's a big part of it. And that lack of education extends to the medical community as well. We hear this from a lot of patients who come to, to found their PCPs are not equipped to treat obesity. You know, the reality is less than 1% of docs in this country are trained in obesity medicine. PCPs have their hands so full. They are trying to treat a multitude of conditions. They don't necessarily have the capacity or the training to do 
the day-to-day handling that's required for ongoing behavior change, or the training in what the underlying root causes of obesity are. And so I think when even the medical community is in a place where they don't fully understand or have training in the treatment here, you can see how this has become a pervasive issue in society where we, we, we blame the person who's facing the challenge instead of really thinking about tackling what the root causes are. And look, nutrition is a huge part of this, and the rise of processed foods has certainly contributed to it. There's also the rise of environmental factors. But we do now have tools to treat this through a biological lens, to treat it as a health condition, move the conversation away from self-image. And I think if we, if we tackle this through a lens of biology, that's how we address the stigma. And, you know, one of the things I think is important in addressing shared stigma is is shared experience. And we saw this with mental health, right? We all went through the pandemic. We were all living with burnout and mental health challenges and anxiety in a different way. I think the pandemic actually is a forcing function in our conversation around weight as well. You know, we, on the one hand, saw that things like obesity predicted worse outcomes with a diagnosis of COVID. And we also saw that we were all experiencing a variety of factors that contributed to weight gain. The average American gained 30 pounds during the pandemic. And that was because we were stressed, we were sedentary, we were trying to figure out how to navigate the complexity in front of us. I do believe that something around this shared experience is going to help us reduce the stigma and ensure that we can get people access to the care that they need. And where stigma becomes a real problem is when it becomes a blocker to access to high quality care. Well, let's go back to something you said about PCPs not having the training or the time to cover this. I have a a friend who's a cardiologist and recently, actually, as I was prepping for this episode and trying to learn as much as I could, you know, she said to me, I could have a bigger impact if I were a weight loss doctor than a cardiologist because I'm seeing them too late. And I don't necessarily have the tools to help them at this point to like really make life changes. I'm curious why we are under equipping our PCPs, our cardiologists, anyone that is dealing with the patients in the aftermath of this disease, what's happening in med schools or what's not happening in med schools? Yeah, I mean, this is one where you start to pull the thread and it can go in so many different directions. I think part of it, and you know this well, Haley, from the work that you do, is that our healthcare system is really more of a sick care system. And we wait until things become really big problems to treat them. There's not enough emphasis on preventative care because the incentives don't exist in the same way. And that's a whole separate discussion around insurance and and sort of alignment of incentives and prioritizing preventative care and these upstream indicators like obesity. I, I think we're moving in a good direction and I do see more emphasis here. We see companies and insurance companies starting to prioritize this for their employees, for their patients, for their member base. And that makes me hopeful. I think some of it is a lack of training. Some of it is a lack of financial incentives being aligned. And I do think some of the social stigma here and and the legacy interpretation that it was someone's fault or something that they did wrong. Now, look, there are lifestyle factors and decisions that people can, can make that can move them in a better direction when paired with biology. But I think we have to start from a place of treating this as a health condition and equipping folks with all of the tools 
whether that's medication or lifestyle change or more nutritional information or better access to stress management tools, we really need to think about this multifactorial approach and that's gonna get us to a better outcome. And PCPs just don't have the capacity to treat this in a really multifactorial way. And that's where we wanna support them. We're, we're trying to build at Found and what I think others are building in this obesity space is the idea that we can be an outsourced weight care clinic that can be a, a lever for those PCPs to lean on when they can't uh, do this work themselves. They have so many other things that they're focused on. This is specialty care. And I think if we treat it as such and we treat it as a referral platform, then hopefully that means that we're getting this wide toolkit in front of more people. So your space has really gotten a lot of attention recently because of GLP-1 medications like semaglutide under the brand name Wagovi. We heard Elon Musk talk about using it for weight loss, rumors that Kim Kardashian, Mindy Kalig have used it. Can you tell us what semaglutide is, what its indications for use and why now? Yeah, so I'll caveat this by saying I am not an MD, um, but I'm really excited to be building a business that is trying to get folks better access to care. And semaglutide is a great tool for that. Our use of semaglutide is at the direction of our chief medical officer, Dr. Rekha Kumar, who's a pioneer in this field. And she and so many others are really excited about the pharmacological developments in this space. So as a little bit of a precursor, there have been medications for weight loss for some time. The clinically significant outcome of taking some of these medications, the gold standard is typically 10% body weight loss, but you start to see an impact at 5%, actually even as little as 3% body weight loss. But at 5%, you're seeing reversals of hypertension, of hyperglycemia, reversal of prediabetes even. What is so extraordinary about some of these newer medications like Wegovi, like Munjaro, which we can talk about, is that they are getting to levels we've never seen before. Wegovi in trials has gotten to 15% body weight loss. That's beyond clinical significance. Munjaro, even 22% body weight loss. And, and so what this means is that we are able to really reverse some of the most challenging downstream impacts of obesity, or to your earlier question, stave them off before they start. Most of these medications started as diabetes medications, actually. Um, before we go, there was a Zembic. It's the same underlying compound, semaglutide, but in a different dosage and rebranded and reapproved by the FDA for treatment of obesity, in addition to treatment of diabetes, which happens through Ozempic. And so this is a variant of GLP-1s, which stands for glucagon-like peptide. Semaglutide is a, a second-generation version of that. Loraglutide came before that. There are now even dual agonists like terzepatide, which are advancing this even further. So this is an exciting time. These are really transformational medications, but their legacy is a bit complicated at the moment, in part because of the Hollywood conversation that you just alluded to. These are powerful medications. They've been tested in folks that have clinical obesity and they've driven amazing results. They're not designed for quote unquote recreational use. This is not really about dropping 10 pounds or losing a dress size. Look, I think it's each individual's choice kind of where they wanna be on their weight journey. But I would just emphasize that these are really powerful tools and they are designed to create better health outcomes for people who need them most. 
And what has challenged me, and I think a lot of other execs in this space, and, and, and certainly doctors who are on the front lines of this, is especially when we see folks using Ozempic in lieu of Wegovy. Ozempic, which is designed for diabetes treatment, it can create shortages and a lack of access to folks that have diabetes and really depend on these life-changing medications. And so I think the- We've seen that, right? We've seen a shortage. We have seen a shortage of Wegovy. And then we've seen as a result, people switching to Ozempic, which has that same underlying compound, but in a different dose. And then we are hearing stories of folks that need Ozempic for diabetes management and now can't get it. And I think the order of the day has to be responsible prescribing and ensuring that we get medications in the hands of the folks that will truly benefit from them. The other thing I will emphasize here is, is as I said, obesity is heterogeneous. And so GLP-1s are a wonderful tool for folks that have insulin resistance and that the root cause of their obesity is directly addressed through the GLP-1. But different people have different root causes of obesity. And one thing that's been interesting to watch is, uh, you know, if you thought about something like cancer, for instance, and I've been on a journey with cancer for the last two years, there are so many different chemotherapies for different types of cancer. And we're going to treat people with the most appropriate chemotherapy for their underlying form of cancer. And my doctor would laugh at me because I would come in and I would have watched a commercial and said like, am I a candidate for XYZ? And she's like, no, that's not even the root cause of your cancer. You're better suited by this. GLP-1s are, are not dissimilar. If the root cause of your diabetes is appropriately addressed by GLP-1s, they can be an amazing tool. I said that wrong. If the root cause of your obesity, not diabetes, if the root cause of your obesity is best addressed by a GLP-1, they can be an amazing tool. But there are other tools out there as well. There are better tools for brain hunger, for example. There are better tools for slow metabolism. And this is where it really comes back to, are you dealing with a specialist who's educated in this toolkit and can prescribe appropriately for you? Obesity is something that needs to be treated in a personalized way. GLP-1s are one important tool, but they're not the only one. And ideally, we'd, we would deploy a wide toolkit so that we can treat this in a truly heterogeneous way. We'll be right back after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The demand for like Wagovi, for instance, as you said, is going beyond just the overweight, obese patient population. Those who, as you said, just want to drop 10 pounds or lose a dress size, want this drug and need something because whatever they're doing right now, like for everyone, isn't working. And actually this morning I saw a tweet, a woman said that she's 27 years old, has a BMI of 20, is not diabetic. 
and was able to get the Wagovi prescription online at two providers. She said it took two minutes. She did call out, she said, to their credit, found and calibrate actually turned her down. But that two of these online prescribers that she found just through Googling were able to make a prescription within minutes. So what are the dangers of like, so, so meeting that demand, I mean, that demand is there and we live in a capitalist society. So founders are going to figure out a way to meet that demand other than potential shortages for those who have real medical reasons. What are some of the other concerns that you have of not tailoring this experience to someone's needs and kind of becoming these pill mills that will give it out to anyone? Oh, uh, Gosh, there's so much to unpack in there. I think first and foremost, I want to emphasize that these drugs are wonderful, but they've been studied and they've been approved to manage excess weight. And the key word is excess. They've been trialed in people with clinical obesity. They've been trialed with people of BMIs of 27 or higher, 30 or higher is the clinical level of obesity. Beneath that, we haven't tested these. And so I do really worry about negative outcomes for folks that are are using medications in ways that it's not designed. So set aside even the the conversation about removing it from people who actually do desperately need this and the challenges that that creates, but we don't know what the lasting impacts of this are going to be in a population that hasn't been tested. There are serious side effects associated with these medications, as there is with any medication. Can you share what those are? Sure. Um, There's a risk for new or worsening kidney failure. There's a risk for pancreatitis, even possible thyroid tumors. Now, the calculated decision that any prescribing clinician makes for any medication is, is the juice worth the squeeze, right? Is the side effect associated with this medication worth the outcome that it's going to drive? And I I often come back to my my own cancer journey because it certainly has informed the way that I think about the healthcare ecosystem. You know, I've been through three different lines of chemotherapy. I can promise you they were not fun, but my oncologist made the decision with me in partnership that even though I would deal with side effects like hair loss or extreme nausea, vomiting, that it was worth it for what it would do to help reduce my tumors and hopefully reduce the risk of recurrence. And so the juice was worth the squeeze. We don't know that the juice is worth the squeeze for folks that don't struggle with obesity. And so for someone who has obesity and is on a path to diabetes, the side effects associated with these medications are probably worth it, right? The nausea that you may encounter, even potentially the risk of some of these more rare side effects likely worth it because there's a clear path to hypertension or diabetes or some of these other chronic downstream impacts. But I don't know if, if, if folks are getting these medications through non-traditional sources and are not dealing with expert clinicians who know how to prescribe them, if they're being fully made aware of the trade-offs here and they are able to consider them appropriately. And, and I think that's something that worries me. That's why, again, I, our chief medical officer and I joke that we're going to get matching tattoos that say responsible prescribing, but that's really how we're thinking about I love that. <laughs> in our I love that. So can you give us like a quick background on the FenFen situation and what happened in the 90s? And, and if you think there is any risk that we could have this situation again? Sure. So the uh, FenFen situation, as you said, was a 
medication that was approved for weight management and prescribing uh, was perhaps not done in a responsible way. And there were very serious side effects associated with that medication. I think, again, this is where this medication should be taken under a doctor's care and ideally a doctor that has expert training in this particular field. And I think that the issues with Benfen have really led to a place where for a while people were were scared of obesity-related medications or anti-obesity medications, AOMs as they're called. And there was a lot of hesitation around prescribing. I do want to emphasize that these GLP-1s have been FDA approved. They've gone through rigorous clinical trials. They've been deemed to be safe when used appropriately. And even though these side effects exist, as, as most medications have side effects, when resp- res- prescribed responsibly, patients are made aware of them and a patient and a doctor can make the decision about what's appropriate for that individual. But I do think the legacy of FenFen has caused us all to want to be really thoughtful about how we incorporate medications into a treatment plan and who is the right candidate for what medication. Again, one size doesn't fit all when it comes to weight loss, whether that's a one size fits all diet or one size fits all medication. And this is where I think the order of the day has to be responsible prescribing so that we're getting it into the hands of people for whom the benefits outweigh the potential risks. Okay, Sarah, tell us about your life's work and what led you to found. Oh, gosh, that's such a juicy question. I think we're all, frankly, still figuring out our life's work. I sometimes joke that I am still figuring out what I want to be when I grow up. But I I started my journey in AmeriCorps, actually, because I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And I have been lucky enough to follow my curiosity since then. And I have really put a big focus in my career on being a part of mission-driven companies. And I think that phrase is is almost overplayed in a way, and you sort of hear everyone tied a mission. And maybe that's a good thing, right? But I think we want to be a part of building something that's that's bigger than we are. And there's this quote by Khalil Gibran that I often come back to. He, he wrote The Prophet, and in there, there's a chapter on work, and he has this uh, sentence that says, work is love made visible. And I, I do feel like our work is our outpouring of our love for the world around us. And I was lucky enough to have experiences, including working at a hedge fund and in strategy consulting. And then a really transformative one for me was being at Bumble. I joined that company when it was 30-ish people still operating out of a two-bedroom apartment. And I saw it through to IPO and, and got to be a part of that journey supporting Whitney's vision And uh, in the latter half of my time at Bumble, I was diagnosed with stage three cancer, as I alluded to. It was really out of the clear blue, no family history. Uh, I did come to later find out that it's genetically linked, but, but no one else had seen that genetic expression. And so it was late by the time we found it. It meant that I had three lines of chemo. I've had something like 13 surgeries, which is, is somewhat unusual, but we've been playing lymph node whack-a-mole And that experience of being a professional patient for two years really helped to to motivate and inspire me to think about what I wanted to do next. I was lucky enough to be at Bumble through such a period of transformational growth. And it was a business where mission was at the fore. You're helping people find the relationship that could change the future of their life. And at the same time, doing it in a way that tried to recalibrate gender dynamics and relationships and doing it with such an incredible and mission-driven team. And so I knew it would take something special to make me 
want to walk away and and think about what's next. And I did have this pretty transformational experience during my cancer treatment where my oncologist at, at one point was really concerned about uh, metastasis, you know, had the cancer spread to elsewhere in my body. And we were waiting on the results from a brain scan and a bone scan and, and some additional screenings. And she said, look, worst case, I can get you five years. You know, we're not talking about 30 days. The The pharmacology has advanced so much that we have interesting immunotherapies. We have tools. I can get you five years. And that really stuck with me. And by the way, my prognosis is is much better than that. Now I've been cancer-free for almost two years. I'm I'm still in treatment. I'm still taking quite a few medications, uh, which probably speaks to some of my passion around pharmacology now. But, But hopefully I have a lot more than five years. But that framing has really stuck with me and that push to think about what I would do differently on the margins, right? If you knew you only had 30 days, you would change everything immediately and surround yourself with the people you love. But the five-year thing for me really pushed me to think about what I might, what I might change on the margins, what I might do to show the people that I love that I love them and to invest myself professionally in things that really mattered. And so that was at an inflection point in my journey at Bumble where I felt like I had done so much work that I was proud of and I really wanted to go back and build again. And I made the decision to leave. I was initially very scared of working in healthcare given some of the experience that I had had. On the one hand, I got most of my care at MD Anderson and and with a coterie of really amazing clinicians. And on the other hand, I had seen just how painful the insurance system was, for example. And, And I felt like there was a lot to fix within healthcare and I wasn't sure that I was qualified or, or had the fortitude to fix it. But I did feel like there was such an opportunity to drive meaning when it came to healthcare, to my earlier points there. And what was interesting is once I opened my mind to exploring healthcare as a next chapter, you realize that there's been such an enormous amount of innovation and the downstream impacts, the diabetes, heart disease, even cancer. And so many of these things have their root cause in obesity and weight. And there had been no innovation in the care delivery for obesity. And there had definitely been no innovation in the narrative. And I felt like that was a set of challenges that I really wanted to sink my teeth into. I do feel like we're due for an update in the way that we talk about obesity. And and we need to update the way we treat it. And I got to know Found and realized that they were taking what was working in academic weight management centers, this really multifactorial approach that gave the clinician a seat at the table, that enabled us to prescribe medication if appropriate, that moved far beyond the eat less exercise paradigm, exercise more paradigm. And I wanted to be a part of thinking about how to scale that, right? These these amazing clinicians at academic weight management centers are doing incredible work, but only 1% of docs in this country are trained in obesity medicine and 70% of Americans struggle with overweight or obesity. So we have to find more scalable ways to treat this this challenge. And you're also at this moment where because of the innovations in pharmacology, because of things like GLP-1s, as well as this wide toolkit of legacy approaches of generic medications, we can treat this in a truly sophisticated and clinical way. And I wanted to be a part of scaling that. Sounds like you got a crash course not only in the healthcare system, which unfortunately anyone who becomes a patient kind of 
sees a starts to peel back the layers of the onion and just realizes how many places are are broken within our system. But you also it you kind of like came to this epiphany of how you wanted to spend your time. And that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. So what are I'm curious Telehealth is a difficult space. I think it's one of the most exciting spaces within medicine, but it's not without its critics. What are your naysayers saying to you and how do you kind of handle that feedback? So I think not only is telehealth important where there's a supply-demand imbalance, but it's also important where stigma is a barrier to access to care. And we we saw early telehealth companies like Hims and Hers and Roman achieve some success around stigmatized issues like ED or hair loss. And I think now we're seeing the next generation of telehealth companies that can also address stigmatized issues, whether mental health or obesity, and provide care in a truly longitudinal way. And so I think there's a really significant role for telehealth, and it's not just pulling forward demand through the pandemic, but it's here to stay for a lot of categories. One thing I will say, though, is I think the role of telehealth within the broader healthcare ecosystem should be to to address the middle of the bell curve, especially where there are capacity challenges, so that the specialists on the ground can can deal with the most nuanced cases, right? There are are folks that we are not best equipped to serve at Found that really may need in-person on-the-ground care, but we can hopefully pull away some of the other folks that might be also looking for those resources, we can better serve them in a really convenient and efficient way with our experts and free up some of that capacity on the ground. And I think similarly, that should be the approach within mental health, as well as other categories where hopefully telehealth is about not really demand creation, but like redistribution of the resources within the ecosystem and serving as a support or for overflow capacity versus the folks on the ground. And then the last point I will make here and where I think that found on others are, are different from perhaps some of the, the negative press that you've seen elsewhere in telehealth is we do not need to do TAM creation to be successful. As I said, 70% of Americans struggle with overweight or obesity. We are not needing to use marketing channels to convince someone that they have a challenge that they may not have realized they had. People who are living with obesity and struggling with obesity are aware of it and are looking for resources. And we want to be the resource for them if that feels appropriate to them to seek that integrated care led by a medical professional. And I think that it's important that telehealth is conscious of the role that it should play in the broader healthcare ecosystem. And that's how we're trying to think about responsibly growing in this space. Amazing. I love it. Any um, last words or insights that you wanted to share with our audience? You know, I sincerely appreciate the time. And I I just hope that through the advent of things like GLP-1s and having a broader conversation around obesity that leans into a biological angle and that thinks about this through science, a science lens, my hope is that that's a halo for the industry overall and that we can really start to think about this, as I said earlier, as a disease, not a decision, and as something that should be treated through a health lens, not one of shame around self-image. And I feel energized by the possibilities here, especially because this is becoming a bigger part of the conversation. My sincere hope is that we can do it in a responsible way and we can allow the science to lead and we can really elevate and hero 
pioneers in the space, the, the docs that have been at this for decades and that have helped to pioneer these advancements. And we really center and hero their perspectives and make sure that we're following the guidance that they offer. Amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for your time and insights today. Thanks, Ali. It was so much fun being with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.